Well, let us pray. Oh, our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, how we long for peace, Dona Nobis Pacem. How we long that peace would prevail upon this world, that peace would prevail in our own hearts and minds and wills. We thank you for the peace that you have established in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, that you, the great creator of all things, should send your beloved into this world, um, even uh, to be rejected and abused and put to death. And, uh, but you vindicated that obedience of your son by raising him from, to new life and have done a most remarkable thing of extending forgiveness to those who rejected you and offering peace. Father, we thank you for the peace that you have accomplished with us in and through Jesus. And uh, we pray that, uh, that that word would go out uh, into all the earth of the Lordship of Jesus Christ and the new life that there is in him. Father, as we look around us, we see um, so much in the world that there is not peace. And we pray particularly for Russia and Ukraine um, with the escalation of violence there. We pray particularly for your people in those lands seeking to live in uh, very difficult circumstances that you give them grace and fill them with your spirit, that they might know how to live wisely and rightly in these challenging circumstances. I pray for those here who are not in a state of peace, who are troubled in various ways. Pray that you, through your spirit, would bring comfort, you bring hope, that uh, you would uh, speak words of gentleness and of compassion. For you are a gracious and compassionate God. Um, who knows our weaknesses, who knows our struggles. Um, so Father, we come as your people uh, in Christ Jesus uh, to approach you this morning. We pray that as we, uh, Brian uh, brings your word to us, that we would have open ears and open hearts uh, to, to listen, to hear, and to take in, and that we would um, be encouraged uh, to persevere in following faithfully after Jesus. Um, so we seek your blessing, we seek your hand upon us, and we thank you for uh, all that you have done and the peace that you establish. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Sean is away uh, this weekend, and... Um, take a little break from his series on John, and Brian will be preaching this morning on Psalm 120, and uh, has chosen for a scripture reading uh, words from the beginning of Isaiah chapter 2, and we're going to read it in parts, men and women, so I'm going to leave the men's part, and we have Nellie has come up here to lead the women. So I invite you to follow the prompts on the screen as we hear the word of the Lord. So men... It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it, and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountains of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, 
and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up swords against nations, neither shall they learn war anymore. The word of the Lord. Brian, please come and teach us. All right, well, let's pray together. Lord, it's such a privilege to come to your throne room. How privileged we are to have access, not to the outer court or the inner court, but to the Holy of Holies, where you reside on your throne through the intercession of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who tore the curtain by his blood and gives us access to you. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. We pray now you'd enlighten the eyes of our heart that we know what the greatness of our calling is in Jesus Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So my dear friend, Sean, is not here today. He's bear hunting. I didn't know if we should pray for him or pray for the bear. But uh, I get to be up here to say hello. And this morning, <clears throat> I would like to address a wound that the pandemic has inflicted upon us and has been detrimental to a critical aspect of our identity as followers of Jesus. Now, I'm sure that it's not news to any of you that because of the prolonged isolation, we have been immobilized shut into virtual word worlds that deprive us of the multifaceted dimensions of our humanity that make us fully alive. Now on the one hand, I'm incredibly grateful for the technological capabilities that were harnessed through the heroic efforts of our staff at the beginning of the pandemic. It was almost miraculous. In one week's time, we were able to pivot and stay connected transporting our worship services and classes far and wide. For shut-ins and others who were physically compromised, this has been and will continue to be a lifesaver. To this day, I'm thrilled to have the capability to conduct classes with friends in other states and to connect with my Romania family on a weekly basis instead of once every two years. Online services are a blessing and they are here to stay. <clears throat> On the other hand, online services are no substitute for incarnational worship. Technology can capture sight and sound, but it cannot transmit touch. I like to hug. It cannot transmit taste or smell. Nor does it require a regular commitment to a particular place and time that is sanctified with layers of memory and singing and praises that ignite our imaginations and broaden our perspectives and enlarge our hearts that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length 
and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. And for those of us who physically returned, I think many of us are still emotionally isolated, tentative about engagement. So to help us break out of our lethargy and crippling fears, I would like to introduce you to a collection of 15 Psalms known as the Songs of Ascent, Psalms 120 to 134. These Psalms were gathered together to be sung by pilgrims as they went up or ascended to Jerusalem three times a year for the great worship festivals of Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Three times a year, our Hebrew forefathers reminded themselves who they were and where they were going. Let's read Psalm 84 together. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of weeping, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. These yearly pilgrimages were a liturgy. It was a liturgy which forged their identity in the saving acts of God's grace. In the spring, the Feast of Unleavened Bread refreshed their memories of how their redemption had been accomplished in the Exodus. The Feast of Pentecost, which coincided with the culmination of first fruits gathered after the spring harvest, reminded them of God's generosity, blessing his people with a land flowing with milk and honey. It was a new Eden. And the Feast of Tabernacles, during which time they lived in huts made from palm fronds and leafy tree branches, reminded them of how God preserved them, just like he did Noah during those 40 years in the wilderness. Eugene Peterson says, the trip to Jerusalem acted out a life lived upward toward God, an existence that advanced from one level to another in developing maturity, what Paul described as the upward call of God in Christ. Well, as Israel's history progressed from Abraham to David and from the monarchy to the exile, these songs took on greater and greater significance as pilgrims found themselves homesick, living further and further from home. And though life in Babylon was good for many financially, all was lost for the godly in exile. For the riches of Babylon were tainted by the taunts of their captors, who demanded them to sing songs of joy. And they wept by the rivers of Babylon. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. Psalm 137. And then the great grand rehearsal took place with indescribable joy celebrated in Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Well, Jesus was well acquainted with pilgrimage and the tensions that came with it. Leaving his heavenly home, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man 
has nowhere to lay his head. His life and longings are inscribed in every line of these songs. So pilgrim is an essential aspect of our identity that we need to recover as followers of Christ. Peter addresses his first letter to those who are elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces. As God's elect, we are beloved sons and daughters. But as exiles, we are not at home in this world. We are citizens of another world, making our way to a heavenly city, a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Now the songs of ascent give voice to the pain and the alienation we experience as foreigners and exiles in a strange land, juxtaposed with the longings of God, the deep longings of God, which break us out of our paralysis and launch us on pilgrimage. Pilgrimage is a visceral discipline. It engages the entire body and all of our five senses as we follow Jesus. So if you'll take out that handout I prepared for you, you can see how the collect, this collection of psalms has a definite shape. With a chiastic structure, there's a grouping of four songs, then three, then one, then three, then four. And at the beginning, we are climbing. At the end, we are descending. And in the middle three collections, we are taking in the vistas of reflection. It's really a spiritual pilgrimage um, to do these things. Well, the first group of four psalms I've entitled Footholds for the Rugged Ascent. In 1970, I was 19 years old, uh, living in Italy, and uh, I decided to climb the Matterhorn. <clears throat> Naively so, with no experience, and living at sea level. And uh, when I got there, um, the woman who was hosting us uh, I found out her husband had been a guide, and so she exhorted me to do this. Well, all of a sudden, I'm on a chairlift going up, and then when you land at 8,000 feet, you have to hike another 2,000 feet to 10,000 feet before you even start, and I barely made it. And I was a bit terrified because you walk past a graveyard of all those that didn't make it. And uh, the, a week after I was there, it was so cold, four people died on the mountain. And so what gave me the courage to make the journey was when I met my guide, who had climbed it 88 times, and I learned that all I had to do was follow in his footsteps. I was uh, on belay with him, and that I'd have protection throughout the way. And that's what happens in these Psalms. The pilgrim is in a dangerous world. He's thrust out on this pilgrimage through pain, and he's told he's gonna have 360 degree protection, and then you see him arrive in Jerusalem and his feet are standing and this elation comes over him and before the throne his eyes are fixated on the Lord to intervene. That's the footholds for the rugged ascent. And then when I finally got to the summit of the Matterhorn, the view at 14,000 feet is incredible. And this is what happens in Psalms 124 to 26. The poet looks back on his life and rehearses God's faithfulness and the stability granted to those that believe and rehearses the joy they have when they were set free from exile. It's a healthy thing to do, to look back with a long view. And then comes the center where he receives this insight at the summit. An insight 
It was life-changing. And I was at the Matterhorn. The inside I got looking out at all these glaciers, as you see from that perspective, the massive weight of the glaciers is what shapes Earth. The petty concerns of Earth do not make it to heaven. It's Earth, it's heaven that shapes Earth. May your kingdom come on Earth as it is in heaven. And a similar insight the poet gets. And then the poet turns the other way in Psalm 128 to 130, looking ahead. And here, looking ahead, he cares about his family. He wants a generational witness, not just for him and his children, but the grandchildren to follow Jesus. And then he has this reflection of when life was at its worst and there was a horrific pain like the Holocaust, how God intervened, so he did not want to forget that as he went forward. And then finally, in Psalm 130, he reflects on God's grace to forgive our sins, which we always need before we go forward. So that's the big picture. Oh, I missed the last one. Uh, Psalm 131 to 34, he ends up with these spiritual disciplines for the descent. And there's four of them. Nurturing his faith, nurturing his hope, and rejoicing in love with unceasing praise. What a journey. So today, I'm just going to take you through the first one and maybe entice you into a class for the rest of them. So we'll look at Psalm 120. If you go, go back to the text, yeah, so we can read it. Yeah. Okay. So let me just read the text together. To the Lord in my distress I called and he answered me. Lord, rescue my soul from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. What will he give to you and what more shall he do to you, you tongue of deceit? Arrows of the warrior, razor sharp with burning coals of the broom tree. Woe to me, for I sojourn in Meshech and I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long has my soul had its dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, war. They are for war. Well, the Christian Hebraist, Willem Gesenius, uh, has shown and suggested that in eight, this is 1812, that the 15 songs may have had their name from the step-like progression of the rhythm of thoughts and the repeated vocabulary that move onward in incremental steps toward a climax, creating a climbing movement of thoughts which plants upon a preceding word and carries it forward until we reach the summit. This is very unique in these psalms. All these psalms have these word pairs that tell you, it highlights the theme and makes you go step by step by step. And when you're in pain, that's the, the speed you need to go, step by step, one to the next. And the step connections, uh, one scholar suggests, were most likely fashioned as devices so the songs could be easily memorized and sung. So we'll have James put them all to music by next year and we'll all sing them. So we come now to the first strophe. To the Lord in my distress, I called and he answered me. Lord, rescue my soul from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. The psalm is framed with conflict. It opens in distress, and the last word is war. 
Distress comes from the verbal root, which means to bind, to tie up, to shut up. And the noun describes a very narrow, tight place with little room to breathe, which creates intense anxiety and anguish. The emphatic repetition of lying lips and deceitful tongue, along with the oath cited in verse three, indicate that the source of distress is that our pilgrim has been the target of malicious slander and a betrayal of a covenantal agreement that cost him dearly. His enemy is a gifted and forceful liar who has successfully maligned his reputation on social media, if he was living here, and he's thwarted all his attempts at mediation. As Jeremiah observed in his own life, the tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully. With his mouth, each speaks peace to his neighbor, but in his heart, he plans an ambush for him. Now, when you're facing a powerful and pervasive liar, you are facing evil at its worst. Okay? When you're facing a pervasive liar, you're facing evil at its worst. You have come face to face with demonic forces. Jesus did not mince any words when he confronted his enemies who were secretly trying to kill him. And he put it out there in the open. He said, you're your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. So the devil is a murderer and he commits murder through lies. How did Hitler manage to kill six million Jews? It was years of propaganda inciting people to hate. James expands the thought. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, standing the whole body setting on fire the entire course of life, and it's set on fire by hell. So what recourse does an unnamed immigrant have when he has no voice, no advocate, and no legal recourse? The answer, because our pilgrim knew the scriptures, he was confident he did have an advocate, one in the highest court of the land. Deuteronomy chapter 10. For the Lord your God is a God of gods and a Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. And guess what? He loves the sojourner, the foreigner, the alien, the immigrant. He loves them. And he loves them by giving them food and clothing. So Israel... Love the sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You know, the wonderful thing about being a pilgrim and an alien is you learn to love immigrants and aliens. 
because that's who we all are. Eugene Peterson writes, sick of lies and crippled by hate, the pilgrim's pain penetrates through despair and invigorates him to venture out of his world to a rugged pilgrimage of discipleship as he longs for an alternative life of shalom. That's the prod that gets him going. It's harsh, it's painful, but it gets things started. It is in the midst of these dark moments when evil is done with impunity that we realize we are made for something different and better and we are looking for a country whose architect and builder is God. I didn't fully grasp this until I went to Romania during communist days. Ceausescu had raped the country, exported the whole food supply to pay the national debt. They were rationed just a few eggs a month and bread, but when you showed up, all the food landed on your table. And the week before I got there in Cluj, the secret police had bulldozed the church. It was illegal for me to be in their homes. It was illegal to meet. But you could not keep them from meeting. And when they met, I remember going to this home. It's at 10 o'clock at night. There are 40 people. All the curtains are closed. And here are these four girls. They're 10 years old. Just their hands are beautiful white dresses. When they sang, heaven came into the room. I'd never experienced worship like that. I taught for four hours. Tears, an intense hush, appreciation. I learned that the greater the pain, the more powerful our worship becomes. And when we're comfortable, we're lazy and we take it for granted. Now, how do you pray when you're in distress? Want good news? You don't have to pray long. There's only seven words in this prayer. Lord, deliver my soul from lying lips, from the tongue of deceit. It is simple. There's no introduction. There's no rosaries to do. There's no manipulating. But it's a very theological prayer. God's name, I am, the covenant-making God, the one who keeps promises, the one who has a legal covenant obligation to save us, is invoked. That dominates both lines as he makes his appeal for deliverance from injustice. And to his amazement, <laughs> you don't even get to the prayer. At the end of verse one, it says, I called and he answered me. So the pilgrim here is given assurance that God heard his prayer. It was either by a priest, like what happened with Hannah, or a prophetic oracle. And imagine how surprised he must have been to learn how motivated God was to save him when he's in the midst of distress. And I found it's of great theological significance to know what is it that motivates God. Well, it's those passages that seem to indicate that God himself suffers when his people are in affliction. Isaiah 63, verse 9. 
In all their affliction, he was afflicted. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love, his chesed love, in his pity and compassion, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. So that suggests that the sufferers are saved by God's loving presence and his compassionate participation in his people's affliction. Nicholas Wolterstorff is an American philosopher and theologian whose son, Eric, died in a mountain climbing accident. He wrote a book, A Lament for His Son. And in that book, he shares how he struggled and he questioned God about the tragedy that would forever change his life. The comfort he found was not in overcoming the death of his son, but in his actual lamenting for his boy, he began to glimpse the suffering of God with him. You can go through anything if you know if God's with you. He says, for a long time I knew that God is not the impassive, unresponsive, unchanging being portrayed by the classical theologians. I knew of God's response of delight and of his response of displeasure. But strangely, his suffering I never saw before. God is not only the God of the sufferers, but the God who suffers. The pain and fallenness of the humanity have entered into his heart. And through the prism of my tears, I have seen a suffering God. Later he said, uh, you know, I used to think that you can't see God. No one can see God and live because his glory is too great. And then he thought, I wonder if it's because his sorrow is too great. He closes by saying, instead of explaining our suffering, God shares it, but I never saw it. Through our tears, we see the tears of God. So that's the first trophy his petition and his answer, and that assurance that God has heard his prayer bolsters our pilgrim's confidence and strengthens his petitions as he waits for the fulfillment of that word. Second strophe, the pilgrim's confidence. What will he give to you and what more shall be done to you, you tongue of deceit? You ever read like that? <laughs> Arrows of the warrior, razor sharp with burning coals of the broom tree. So reflecting on God's commitment, God is committed to uphold justice. And divine retribution always fits the crime. That truth protects him from taking his own revenge. The twofold what and what more indicates his persecutor has entered into a covenant with him and he sealed it, typical in the ancient Near East, with an oath upon his life, with the terrible words of self-destruction. God do so to me and more so if I don't fulfill the covenant. This man had sworn a lie in God's name and called God as a witness. 
So the tormentor must now bear the destruction he had called down on upon himself, for God will not be mocked. And what is that destruction? <laughs> Arrows of the warrior, razor sharp with burning coals of the broom tree. I have a quote here by an ancient Jewish commentator, and I have no idea where I got it, but I'll just say it. Slander not only cuts, it wounds deeply, and then it seethes and burns. It's hard to get over. Why select the arrow from all weapons? All other weapons strike close up, while this one strikes from afar. This is the way of evil tongues. What is said in Rome kills in Syria. And not any ember, but only the white broom embers, for all members extinguish inside, while the embers of the broom tree, even when they are extinguished externally, they still burn inside. Well, God's commitment to uphold justice is further affirmed in Psalm 53. Your, you love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue, but God will break you down forever. He'll snatch and tear you from the, your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. If that's not enough, Psalm 64 builds on the same theme with more graphic and chilling consequences. They wet their tongues like swords who aim bitter words like arrows, shooting from ambush at the blameless, shooting at him suddenly and without fear. They hold fast to their evil purpose. They talk of laying snares secretly, thinking, who can see them? But God. God shoots his arrow at them. Suddenly they are wounded. They are brought to ruin with their own tongues turned against them. And all who see them will wag their heads with scorn. The wicked will be judged. No question about it. Therefore, we never have to seek our own revenge, as Paul warns. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Well, that's good news, but it begs the question, how long? <laughs> This poet lives in this liminal space. He's been given the promise he heard, amazingly, but it's not fulfilled. And that's the tension we live with, isn't it? And so he concludes with a lament, having to stay in this liminal space. Verse five. Woe to me, for I sojourn in Meshach. I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long has my soul had its dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, and the Hebrew text just pauses there, you're waiting for the answer, and the Hebrew just says, they war. Powerful. Woe is me is an impassioned word reflecting despair. Too long has our pilgrim been called to live in an impressive world that he names Meshach and Kedar. Meshach lies to the extreme northwest in Asia Minor, between the Black Sea and Caspian Sea in what is now southern Russia. The descendants of Meshach were a warlike and barbarous people, well known as shrewd traders. They exported slaves and copper with Tyre, the capital of Phoenicia. 
Their great military might posed a constant threat to Israel from the north. Kedar was located in the southeast in the Arabian Peninsula. They were the sons of Ishmael, and as such were implacable enemies to Israel. In Arabic, Qadir means to possess power. And for four centuries, they flourished as the most powerful tribe within the Ishmaelite confederacy. Here they're portrayed as bloodthirsty Bedouins who refuse to negotiate for peace. Now we know from history that as one generation succeeded another, far from becoming more amiable to the God of peace, they became more hostile toward God's people. A fifth century Egyptian inscription names one of the kings of Kedar, Geshem, the Arabian, who may have been the same king who became Nehemiah's staunch adversary. Nehemiah wanted to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and every attempt he made, Geshem vehemently opposed him. Later in the wheels of history, the founder of Islam, Muhammad, traced his lineage back to Ishmael through Kedar. From Meshep will come the prince of Gog, who in the latter days will amass an army so great, the prophet described it as a cloud covering the land, and they send it to destroy the people of God, the quiet people who dwell securely with no walls, bars, or gates. Sounds like Ukraine. Meshach in the north, Kedar in the south are archetypical labels, a poetic device of amerism using opposites to express totality. So not only is his pain gone on too long, it's universal. This is the universal he gets north, south, east, west. I know there's people in our congregation that have done business overseas in foreign cultures and they have found that that has been their experience of warlike behavior, breaking commitments. I know families who have this happening in their own family, where it's war every day. That's Meshach and Kedar. And so it makes us feel out of place, it makes us feel like aliens. So what do we do? Well, let me review what I've already said, there's two wrong responses. I think often our first response is the monastery approach. <laughs> Just go withdraw, find some friends and hide and don't have to relate to these kinds of people. But that is not an option because it violates our identity as pilgrims, as exiles, as sojourners on the earth meant to spread the kingdom of God and Jesus encouraged the disciples in the upper room. He said, behold, an hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you'll be scattered, each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. So that's the answer to the monastery approach. The other approach is if you're gonna engage, you might as well fight fire with fire. So that violates our identity as beloved saints in God's household. And it creates a war within 
so that we become like them. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. I found this happening a lot to me in the last years as the political divide just got horrendous. And I found the more I listened, the more I had my own war was going on inside. And it wasn't healthy for me. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I think one of the greatest evils that's happening worldwide today is Christian nationalism. It's horrific. It's using worldly weapons of force and control and perverting the gospel in the process. And we're losing our, our total ministry. I was talking with a neighbor yesterday and they found out I wasn't that. They, were, they just went, oh, thank goodness. We can talk. Don't fight fire with fire. So what do we do? Well, we need a long view of prayer and answers to prayer. When I was 23 with Emily, we had our firstborn son and he got pretty sick. They took him to intensive care. And Elaine Stedman, the wife of Ray Stedman, organized an all-night prayer meeting in our brand new condominium that David would live. They prayed all night and David died. The next year, the same thing happened. Jessica died. And then God heard our cries. We adopted Becky. We had two more children. I think the long view of that night, everything that's happened since, all the gifts were a result of that meeting. Three daughters, grandkids, Romanian family, everything. But it takes a long view to see that. And so for this pilgrim, justice is certain. His prayer is answered, and it will be implemented. In two eschatological passages, Meshach and Tubal are ruled by Gog of the land of Magog. And they create an army on an assault on God's people, and at that battle, God's going to oppose him and destroy them. And the same fate is told for Kedar. So there will be justice, first thing. But secondly, justice is delayed for the sake of salvation. Peter says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowless, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So the pain of judgment called down against the evildoers could actually turn them from their deceitful and violent ways to join the pilgrim on the way of peace. And I don't know the date of this psalm, but I can't imagine this pilgrim coming across Isaiah 2 as an answer to his prayer. 
that one day God would raise up that mountain, the mountain of the Lord, and when he does, all the peoples will come in like a flood, not coerced, freely because of what's happening on that mountain. They're coming there to meet Messiah King. And when they meet him, he teaches them Torah. And when they do that, there's a result. As they go back home, they take all the resources that went for war and protection, spears, and they turn it into weapons of cultivating life, the plow to dig, the pruning hooks to harvest. That's Christians. That's what happens. And I condemn the NRA to want to preserve assault weapons in our country when we don't need them for anything except killing children. How in the world can you come to church, listen to the Messiah, and go back and get rich off of assault weapons? I think of this pilgrim reading this text and the joy that would come in his heart. And not only that, Isaiah goes on to say in chapter 42 that there's going to be a new day with a new song when praise is going to fill the whole earth. And he says, let the desert and the cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits, and they will sing with joy. And they're going to take all those sheepskins that they used to, and, and put them on the altar of the Lord. So this pilgrim is going to meet face-to-face inhabitants from Kedar that love Jesus. That's worth waiting for. So that's the liminal space we live in. And I'm just so glad that this pilgrim lamented, connected with the Lord to teach us how to do it. So I close with this. I'm going to invite the choir back up to sing. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And the grace of the Lord be with you. So if I stirred your imagination with this psalm and you want to continue on the journey with me, uh, I offer you a carabiner and a rope and you can come to my class on Wednesdays beginning in October and uh, we'll do all 15 together and maybe end up in the Alps at the end. So now this benediction. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.